Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Well, today I am fired up to be here with you. As a matter of fact, last night felt a little bit like Christmas Eve for me. And the reason why it felt like Christmas Eve for me is because as a pastor who's been preaching the word now for over 23 years, I am always surprised at how excited I get when I'm able to open up a new book of the Bible with God's people and begin to study a new section of scripture. Last night, thinking about the book of Romans kept me awake. I kept popping up almost like again, it was Christmas Eve, and then finally at about 4.30 in the morning, I gave up the fight, stayed up, and decided I'm just gonna keep reading this thing until uh, it just gets down in my heart. And I pray that as we go through this book, these few chapters of Romans that we're gonna travel through, that your excitement will build each week Why do I pray that? It's because Romans might be arguably one of the most uh, powerful and influential sections of scripture that the church has known. It is and, and, and has been the turning point for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, through which much of what we celebrate concerning the truths of the gospel was recovered and uh, established as as truth. Let's uh, look at some quotes. I wrote down some quotes from some of the uh, uh, reformers and uh, other influential people throughout history on the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this concerning Romans, that Romans is the purest presentation of the gospel and the chief part of the New Testament. The purest presentation of the gospel and the chief part of the New Testament. Uh, That's excitement, friends. John Calvin, in his introduction to the book of Romans, says this, regarding the excellencies of this epistle, he was scarcely right. Uh, because he knew his words would fail him, he goes on to say, when anyone gains knowledge of this letter, he is open to himself all the hidden treasures of Scripture. This is a man who wrote voluminously about every book of the Bible, but he says concerning Romans, concerning the excellencies of this book, he would scarcely write because he knew that his words would fail how great of a book this is He says, if a person gets a hold of this book, they have opened themselves up to the hidden treasures of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon, many call him the prince of preachers. He says this, nobody ever outgrows Romans. The book widens and deepens with our years. You never outgrow the book of Romans. It only gets better the deeper you go. How many have ever heard the name John Wesley before? Anybody ever heard that name, John Wesley? John Wesley, father of the Methodist church, he was preaching, get this, he was preaching before he was saved. I'll let you figure that one out. Even preachers need the gospel. And he had come from England to this new land uh, in order to preach the gospel here. And he says, I come to this new country to convert others And I myself was not converted. But as I read Romans, my heart was strangely warmed. 
His heart was strangely warmed as he realized the grace that God had offered to him through Jesus Christ. Today we're gonna to talk about the grace that has come to us by way of Christ. The grace that is available to each and every one of us. And that grace is available to all of us because all of us are desperately in need of it. Now, we're not gonna be able to, time won't afford us to go verse by verse through all 16 chapters. So what we're gonna do is jump into the heart of the book. We're gonna look at chapters five through eight. Can you turn there with me to Romans chapter five? In Romans chapter five, what we're uh, going to see today is this powerful, powerful thought. And it summarizes the first four chapters. The chapters before are summarized with this thought that God only saves bad people. And that was a great place to shout. That was a great place to praise the Lord. And it also is a statement that reveals a lot about our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of the gospel. God only saves bad people. Another way of putting that is God can't save good people. And you know why he can't save good people? Because there are no good people. This is exactly what Romans seeks to argue. Look at chapter five, verse number one. The first word you see there is a connector. It's the word therefore. Therefore seeks to connect everything that precedes to everything that will come. And so what is Paul trying to connect here with this word therefore? Everything he's been arguing up until this point. Now, what has he been arguing? Well, in chapter one, verse number 16, he argues that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We are in a world that is constantly seeking power. Power to face the day, power to overcome the darkness, power to sustain ourselves in the face of such evil and darkness. Where does power come from? Where do we get the power to not only stand physically, but even more importantly, spiritually? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, our power, our strength to withstand the evil of this world, the power to be able to experience life now and in in eternity comes from the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the story and the message of God from creation to consummation, and it is seen in its greatest act at Calvary. Calvary expresses the ultimate love of God displayed through the sacrifice of our Savior as he offers to us forgiveness, taking upon himself the penalty for our sins. It's our sins that led him to that cross. He lived a perfect and a sinless life. He did nothing wrong. So why would he be crucified with criminals? Because he was dying for us. This is what makes the gospel so unique. Christianity, unlike any other faith or religion, is not about men's ability to measure up to God's standards. It starts off by telling us we can't. We cannot measure up to God's standards. It is the message, and this is where it's unique, of the hero dying for the villain. Think about that. Only in the gospel does the hero of the story die so the villain can be saved. Romans 3.23, if you could turn back just two chapters with me, verse number 23 of chapter 3 
and sums up our condition. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, if we were to check our resumes, would have to admit that we are blemished. How many here can admit to your sinfulness? How many can do that? Praise God. How many recognize that we are not perfect, that we have all fallen short? Well, if you're not convinced, we could go back a little bit further. In the same chapter, verse number nine, Paul says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He had already said that the Gentiles needed God. What about the Jews? Surely they're the ones who received the covenants. They're the ones that were God's chosen people. Surely they're better. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one understands, not one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, I don't know how much blunt you can get, but Paul is pretty blunt, he is, he is pretty clear that any definition of sin that only considers the other is too narrow in its scope. See, in our generation, we only know sin as it pertains to those who are different than us. Different than us maybe in the way they think. Different than us in their preferences. Different than us in their politics. Different than, than us maybe even in their customs. That's the way we've been taught sin. But that is a narrow view of sin according to Scripture. Scripture says none of us are righteous. If the Jews, again, who have received the covenants of God, who the Messiah came through, if they were in need of salvation, how much more you and I? But Paul doesn't stop and just say that every single one of us are guilty of sin. He goes on to begin to say every part of us is sinful. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Uh, the venom of asap is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Don't worry, it gets better. But in order for the good news to be good, you gotta first understand why the bad news is so bad. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. Every single one of us are in need of grace, of mercy, of a mulligan, but praise God, that's why he sent his son as our savior to give us what we could not get for ourselves. And this is why you and I are foolish to think that we'll clean ourselves up and then come to God. If you could clean yourself up, you wouldn't need a savior. But how many thank God that he cleans us up, that he makes us clean and acceptable through his sacrifice to our God, amen? Well, having established that we all need a savior, now he goes into the benefits of our salvation. And the first benefit we're gonna see here is in verses one and two. Again, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Man, I absolutely love this. Here's the question. After establishing that we were all sinful, and most people who understand the Bible don't disagree with that, after establishing that, it begs the question. How then is a man or a woman justified before God? How do we get justified before God? Because if we're all guilty, then that means when he comes back, we're going to receive the just punishment for our sin. We are all deserving of the wrath of God. That is the testimony of Scripture. None of us could even make it through the Ten Commandments. Even if we just went down a few of them, how many by the show of hands have ever lied before? Even a little white lie. Some of you have raised your hands. The rest of you are lying. That's, that's how we know we need a Savior. Right? How many have ever used the Lord's name in vain before? How many have ever lusted before? Listen, join the party. In a generation that is fighting for equality, understand this, that any argument about equality must start for the believer on the basis of sin. Because this is where we're equal. This is where regardless of generation or geography or culture, we are all equal Sinners, all in need of his grace. Wealth doesn't change that. Status doesn't change that. Who you know doesn't change that. Likes on Facebook or Instagram or any social media platform doesn't change that. So how then is a man or a woman justified? Well, here we see Paul declaring that we are justified by faith. By faith alone, this is what the reformers fought for. They fought for the fact that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, the sufficiency of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that what he's done on our behalf is sufficient for our salvation. It is not faith and. See, this is where the Catholic Church in that season got it wrong, and many continue to get it wrong, because many argue that it was faith in Christ plus the sacraments, faith in Christ plus communion, faith in Christ plus baptism, faith in Christ plus the scriptures and proper understanding and the mass, and faith in Christ and marriage, or faith in Christ and confession. But whenever you add to faith in Christ, you have diminished what he did on that cross. It is not faith in Christ, and it is faith in Christ alone. What he did on that cross is sufficient to save you, me, and all who will put their faith and trust in him. So how are we justified? Through faith alone. And what does that faith bring us into? Peace. We have shalom. Shalom with who? Shalom with God. The war is over. That was an announcement, friends. The war is over. There have been a war since the time of Adam between God and man. Because of our sin, we were enemies to God. There was hostility between us and God. There was beef between us and God. Things were not good. We were not on the same side. We were angry against God, and God's wrath was turned towards us. How many remember a time or a season in your life where you were hostile to the gospel? How many remember that? Where you were even hostile to Christian people, this whole thought of believing in Jesus and coming to church. Well, the Bible teaches us 
that all of us were, through our actions and belief, God-haters and hostile to God. And because God is good and just, he has to deal with our sin, so that meant we were deserving of his wrath. And this was the, the, the course we were on. This was our trajectory until the cross of Christ. This is what makes the cross of Christ the watershed moment of human history. This is what makes the cross of Christ everything. Everything is seen in the cross of Christ. It is the high note of our salvation. And everything else is but a footnote to the cross of Christ. Why? Because it brings us peace with God. It ends the war. Now, let me ask this question. What is the greatest story of forgiveness you've ever heard? What's the greatest story of reconciliation and forgiveness you've ever heard? Maybe it's a story of uh, a wife who forgives an unfaithful husband. Maybe it's a story of two friends who had a fallen out and years later they come back together again. I don't know what your greatest story of reconciliation is. I, I remember mine. I remember going to Rwanda, Africa. Anybody ever heard of Rwanda before? Rwanda is this country that became popular on the world scene because of a genocide in 1994. A movie was later, later made about it called Hotel Rwanda. But in 1994, in the span of about 30 days, nearly 800,000 uh, Tutsis died as the Hutu tribe killed them, murdered them, all because of political reasons and social unrest. I went there in 2008, and it was amazing because in 2008, as I saw the country, heard the backstory, but saw the interaction of the people, you would never know that this had happened. You would, you would never know that they had been through such civil unrest. They worshiped together, they prayed together, they took communion together, and they would tell you just about to a person, it was through the gospel that their nation was healed. It was through the message of Christ as Christianity swept through the nation that it healed the wounds of discord. My friends, I don't care what story you've heard of forgiveness and reconciliation, all of them pale in comparison to what Paul just said, God has done through Christ. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to God where there is no more war, and not only have we been declared in the courtroom of heaven not guilty, but if our faith is in him, we have been declared righteous. We have gone from being children of wrath to children of favor. And how does that happen? Only through the cross of Jesus Christ and our faith and our trust in him. You may say, like, man, that sounds too easy, but I will tell you the hardest thing in the world is for a man or a woman to humble themselves and to acknowledge I can't save myself, my education, my good works, my money, none of that can save me, that only God through Christ offers salvation. He goes on in verse number two to say that not only is the war over, but now we have access we have access by faith into this grace. How many need grace? You know what grace is? Grace is receiving mercy and favor as if you did what was right even though you didn't do what was right. 
You think about it from a financial perspective. What is a grace period? A grace period is when your company, let's just take an insurance company for example, your company treats you as if you made your payment on time even though you didn't make your payment on time. Anybody ever experienced that? You've been busy, you forgot to make the payment, and oh no, your coverage didn't lapse though because they gave you a grace period. How many thank God for grace, right? If you're a human being, you better thank God for grace. Well, what God has given us is grace in that we are treated as if we are righteous even though we have done nothing righteous. And it's faith that gives us access into grace. I was sharing with you guys a few weeks ago for my anniversary, my wife wakes me up one morning and she says, how would you like to go to the Hall of Fame inductions in Cadden, Ohio? I'm like, absolutely. So we packed the bag and uh, we got in the car, we went. I got a chance to see Peyton Manning inducted into the Hall of Fame, Megatron, Calvin Johnson, Charles Woods, and all these great players that I cheer for, seeing them inducted to the Hall of Fame. And we had great tickets. We weren't too far uh, into the seats from, uh, from the stage. But then I saw these other group of people who were down in the front row. And they had access behind the stage. And they got a chance to get autographs from the people that was inducted and the jealousy in Chris Brooks <laughs> began to rise on the inside. And what was I envious of? I had uh, a ticket, but what did they have? They had all access passes. They could go anywhere in the place. They could eat with the players' families and everything. I would have sold my car for those tickets. <laughs> they were all sold out. But this is our hearts. We want all access, don't we? We want uh, to be able to interact uh, with the best of the best. We want to be able to experience all the benefits. Well, here's what Jesus did on the cross through faith in him, his blood grants us full access into the presence of God. Now I can boldly come to the throne of grace, offer my request and my petition, and he hears me. I can enter into his presence in worship. I can be received as a son or a daughter of God. I receive all the benefits of grace because of Jesus. How many thank God you got full access because of him? Two types of people in here, those of you who have punched your ticket and those of you who haven't. And my prayer is if you haven't, that today's message will encourage you to trust in him. Then he goes on in verses three through five to give us even more truth. He says, not only that, all those things he's already mentioned, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. My folks and my friends, it just gets better and better and better. Look at what he says. He says, not only are you justified, declared righteous, not only have you been given a full access pass into God's presence, but now even suffering does not have to be an enemy for you. Even suffering has become a servant to God's plan for you. Where else in all of life do you read these words like we do in verse number three, but we rejoice in our suffering. 
Where else do you see but in Christ suffering and rejoicing in the same sentence? Now, why do we rejoice in suffering? Precisely because our God is sovereign. And because he is in control over all things, he takes even what the enemy meant for evil and uses it for our good and his glory. How many times have I seen in my own life these things come in that I would have never invited, these uninvited, unwanted things come in that I think, oh no, this is going to absolutely destroy me only to see God use it to strengthen my testimony, to shape me more like him, and to help me to see his gospel more clearly. When you are in Christ, even suffering is a servant. When you are in Christ, here's the good news, suffering has misfired. It is not accomplishing what the enemy thought it would. So we don't have to fear suffering. Don't let the enemy keep you in this prison afraid of suffering. No matter what you go through, here's the good news. He is Emmanuel. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And how many know that God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he uses it for our good and for his his glory. And he says, you know what suffering does in the life of the believer? It produces things. So when suffering and hardship comes to you, it produces endurance. And that endurance produces character. And that character ultimately produces hope. And what is our hope? Our hope is that God is using even this to grow me, to sanctify me to help me to become like him. Some of you have been praying, Lord, change my circumstances. Instead, you need to begin to thank God. Thank God that even in these difficult things, he is with us. Now, that is a truth for the believer. For those who have rejected Jesus, your suffering is a reminder to you of how much you need a savior. Because none of these things are true for us if we're not uh, followers of Jesus, if we have not put our faith in Christ, then that means we're still at war with God, still recipients of his wrath, still deserving of his judgment, still with, without an all-access pass into his grace, still crumbling under the weight of suffering. For the believer, suffering only provokes more glory. How many have ever heard of the name Johnny Erickson Tata? Anybody ever heard of that name? You could Google it. It was a woman who, at the age of 13, jumped into a lake, underestimated the shallowness of the lake, ended up breaking her spine, paraplegic. And you would think that that would devastate a young 13-year-old and that her future would be snuffed out. But God redeemed her. And when God saves us, he uses all of life, even the pain, for his glory. She has gone on to not only live a full life, but she has gone on to preach the gospel to millions the world over. Suffering doesn't have to be your enemy. Suffering can be your servant when you are in Jesus. How many thank God for that? Then he closes this section by reminding us that Jesus' death reconciles us and his life gets us home. Look at what he says in verse six. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. 
but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again and again, he drives home this point, we are reconciled. In banking terms, there is no more debt. Our liability has been forgiven. There was a sin debt for you and I that we owed that was too great for us to pay. We could have lived a thousand lifetimes and we still could not have paid God what we owed him because of our sin. But praise God, Jesus, through the death on that cross, paid our sin debt. Our account has been reconciled. We are now in good standing with God. Praise God for that. So we come in. And we can worship him, we can praise him, we can rejoice in him, all because we have been forgiven. Here's the most important question. This is what I have to leave you with. For whom did Christ die? Who is this offer of salvation for? Verse number six tells us, for while we were still weak, weak in our sins, overwhelmed by ungodliness, overwhelmed by iniquity, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Verse number eight, but God shows his love for us that while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the good news, friends. Who qualifies for this great offer of salvation? Only those who are messed up. How many people in here are messed up people? Praise the name of God. If you are a messed up person, if you are a person who has a blemished resume, if you have messed up your life, here's the good news. You qualify. The misfits qualify. The sinner qualifies. The person who has made all the mistakes, they qualify. The only person who doesn't qualify is the person who has already deemed themselves to be too good for Jesus. He cannot save good people because there is only bad people. God only saves bad people. But if today you can be honest about your own sin and neediness, then I invite you, join the rest of us sinners and turn to the only one who can offer salvation, Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith and trust in him, he will save you, grant you access into his grace and give you joy unspeakable forevermore. Everyone stand. Today there are two types of people in this room. Those who need this offer of salvation and those who have received it. If you need it, as soon as we are done worshiping, come to the front. There will be friends up here. I'll be up here. We would love to pray for you so that you can leave here knowing that you've been granted that all access passed to his grace through faith in him. And that's true for you online too. Just type connect and we'll respond to you as well. But the second group are those of you who have already received. It's your job to tell the world this good news. 
Tell the world, your friends, your family, your grandbabies, your children, your neighbors. That's our job description, to let everyone know that salvation has come through Christ and Him alone. Father, I pray that today we would be de declares and witnesses of your good news. Save as only you can. In Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. And all God's people said a big amen. Come on. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.